Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. Joshua here. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Eric Weiner, the author of the book, The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. Eric has also written books like The Geography of Genius and The Geography of Bliss. Eric is an extremely interesting writer with lots of wisdom to share. I really enjoyed the conversation. In this episode, we discuss how to wonder like Socrates, how to listen like Schopenhauer, how to be kind like Confucius, how to cope like Epictetus, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the wise and gracious Eric Weiner. Before we bring on our guest, if you're not already a subscriber to The Path, it's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom sent right to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com slash start here to get the path. It's completely free and you'll be joining a community in search of wisdom for everyday life. Now, on to the show. Hey, Eric, thank you for being on the show. Happy to be with you, Josh. Well, to start, I have to say you did a wonderful job integrating lots of humor and humility with these timeless life lessons in the book. It was a really entertaining read. Thank you. I think humor and humility is a, is a fine combination. It's, it's what I aim for in, in all my writing, so I'm glad to hear it worked for you. Definitely. Mission accomplished there. Before we start the conversation, I just want to highly encourage the listeners to pick up the book. It's the Socrates Express. It is also great on audio. Eric does a phenomenal job with the narration. To begin the conversation, would you mind speaking to the format and inspiration for the book? Well, let's start with the inspiration. The inspiration was a hunger, not for food, but for, not for knowledge, but for wisdom. And there is a difference. And I felt like I, and probably a lot of people out there, are hungry for wisdom. And it seemed to me that we overlook this one incredible source of wisdom, a field whose very name has wisdom in it, philosophy. From the ancient Greek philosophia, love of wisdom. That was the inspiration, my humble attempt to actually help revive philosophy as something practical, something understandable, and even more important, useful in people's lives. As far as the format, I wanted a book that was digestible. So instead of going with a big three course meal, I went with a 14-course tapas meal, small plates, but <laughs> small but hopefully satisfying. So, each chapter is a how-to question and not a difficult how-to question like how to resolve the inherent contradiction between democratic impulses and authoritarian regimes, but simple how-to questions like how to get out of bed in the morning, how to wonder, how to listen, how to fight, how to cope. And so each chapter is a question, a how-to question, 
and usually a single philosopher who wrestled with that question and helps us answer it. And finally, the overarching organization is dawn, noon, and dusk, with the idea being that the first part of our life in dawn, there are certain questions that are relevant to us. In the prime of our life, noon, there are other I would say philosophical question, but really they're, they're life questions that are relevant to us. And in the, the, the sunset years, the evening of our life, there are other questions like how to cope, uh, how to grow old, how to die, that rise to the fore. So that's the overall structure. In this hunger for wisdom, I definitely resonate with that and probably the reason for starting this yeah, podcast. I was going to say you've got a podcast with, an, <laughs> with a name right up front. So yeah, it doesn't come as a shock, but go ahead. <laughs> what initially spurred that hunger? Anything in particular? I wish there was some like, you know, near-death experience or some like single moment I could point to. But the truth is there wasn't. And I think that's the case for many people. It's partly as I get older, I I start to say things like, as I get older, which I never said before, but now I say that. And I also feel like I've exhausted some of the other sources of wisdom. Religion, I haven't fully exhausted it. I, I still have a spiritual thread running through my life, but it's just one thread. And I don't find everything that I'm hungering for in terms of wisdom in religion. Other people do. That's great. Not for me. And the other main source of wisdom, what in our world today is what? It's, it's psychology, pop psychology, social science, any article that begins a study found that blah, blah, blah. And these are, these are helpful. These are useful. But let's, let's face it, you know, psychology has been around what, 100, 150 years, something like that. Philosophy has been around for thousands of years. And of course, psychology grew out of philosophy. Physics grew out of philosophy too. Pretty much every field today grew was once part of philosophy. So I felt like, you know, why not go back to the source, to the mothership? I love it. And a big part of the book is also these train rides right. um, for each right. particular chapter. What is it about trains that you love? I like trains. I don't like trains like in that nerdy way of people who are really into types of diesel electric locomotives and track gauges. I'm not into that. I just like the experience of riding a train. It just, it slows me down. I feel like I'm cocooned, and especially if you're in one of those little compartments like they have in Europe and, and still on Amtrak these days. And I am a place person. All my books have this strong element of place. So I thought, why not go from one philosophical epicenter to another by train. So the train rides, it's not a book about trains, but the intermissions, the little interludes between chapters are me on a train thinking, either digesting what the previous philosopher had to say or anticipating what the next philosopher might have to say to me. So, and it turns out that, that I'm not alone in this, that philosophers born since the age of train travel in the mid 19th century they do a lot of thinking on trains. Uh, J.K. Rowling invented Harry Potter while on a delayed British rail train. Mm. Lord Kelvin, the British scientist, came up with some of his best ideas on trains. So there's something about trains that are conducive to thinking and contemplation. I would love to start with, uh, I think my favorite chapter in the book was How to Wonder Like Socrates. Hmm. If you had to 
put a definition or maybe differentiate with curiosity? What are some thoughts there? Well, they're often used synonymously, but there there is a difference. And I'm I'm in favor of both, to be sure. But curiosity has this restive quality to it, I think. You're curious about this. Oh, no, what's that shiny object there? I'm curious about that. Wonder has a little bit more of a stillness to it. You're going to stop and wonder. It also is closely aligned with the emotion, really, of awe, wonder and awe, so that when you're wondering about something in that sense of the word, there's a sense of reverence and awe, almost a spiritual element to it. And curiosity killed the cat. Wonder never killed a cat. Never, as far (laughs) as I know. So it's a difference of degree, but I think it's an important distinction. You met with Jacob Needleman and and discussed ordinary questioning from deep questioning. What's the difference here? How would you describe that? Well, I met with Jacob Needleman, who is a contemporary philosopher now in his 80s, because of one sentence that he wrote in his book, The Heart of Philosophy. And I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but he said that our, our society tends to reach for answers or for pleasure without ever experiencing its questions. And I thought that really intrigued me. What does it mean to experience a question? And what's wrong with answers anyway? We all want answers. If you're in jeopardy, you don't experience it. Well, you want questions actually in jeopardy, but that's another thing. You want, in general, you want you want answers, right? And and we, we go to school and our kids go to school. They learn how to come up with the answers and our politicians are trying to come up with the answers to our problem. So there's a lot of focus on answers, but not a lot of focus on questions and certainly not on experiencing questions. So that's what Jacob and I talked about is how can you experience a question? To experience a question is to engage in deep questioning, essentially, to not rush toward the answer, to sit with the question a little bit longer. And that, you know, that doesn't jibe really with our modern sensibility. We're a people in a hurry. And if anything, life seems to be speeding up. And that speed comes at a cost. And one of those costs, and it's a huge cost really, is the ability to sit and experience questions without reaching for an answer. And I realize this can often float off into the stratosphere and sound fuzzy. So to bring it down to earth, if you felt you weren't successful enough, you needed your, I don't know, let's say you were starting a podcast and about wisdom and I don't know, it wasn't, you felt it wasn't successful enough. Now, the quick Solutions would be, okay, how can I make it more successful? How can I get more listeners to tune in? What do I need to do? Who can help me do these things? But Jacob Needleman and Socrates both would say, well, Josh, why do you want it to be successful? And what does success look like to you? And you may still get to that answer of, I want to be, I want more listeners and I want to know how to get them. But you would get there without skipping those steps, without experiencing the question first. And And that's important. That's what Socrates was, that's what he was urging uh, 2,500 years ago. That's what Jacob Needleman's talking about today. That's what I'm trying to convey in my book as well. To stay with this for a bit, it, it, it seems like there's definitely a need for patience to experience and, and live a question. Any thoughts on cultivating a bit more patience with questions? I think tied to the patience with the questions is an ability to sit in this uncomfortable space of having asked a question but not having an answer. And it is uncomfortable. So in a way, 
it's building up your tolerance for this discomfort, that your head's not going to explode if you don't have the answer right away. We humans are, I don't want to say wired because I don't think we're, I don't think we're wired for much except for not being wired, but we do have a tendency to want to check things off our list. It's called the Zagarnik effect. I don't know if you've heard of the Zagarnik effect from a Soviet psychologist from the early 20th century. She noticed that waiters in a restaurant, you know, that basically from the time they took an order to the time they delivered to the kitchen, they were unable to process anything else. They had to deliver that order. And she then did this, observed this in the laboratory and further studies that that basically until we get that thing done, we are uncomfortable and we're not able to take in more information. And I think we need to push against this tendency and build up. It's like nobody really likes exercising when people used to go to the gym back in the day, <laughs> especially when you first start off. It's uncomfortable, but it's painful. You might be sore, but you're building up your strength and you're tearing muscles, literally. And so we need to be willing to tear some muscles and say, okay, I'm going to ask this question, what does success look like? I'm not going to answer it right away until I'm just going to let it let it marinate. And we don't let our questions marinate very much these days. And and that's, God, we could go on for an hour about why that is, speed, productivity, being results-oriented, all these things. And I, I think it this mindset does us a disservice. And Socrates, though he lived 2,500 years ago, is very relevant today, especially when it comes to this style of conversation, what one philosopher called enlightened kibitzing that he would do with the people of Athens. Just let's talk about courage. What is it? Let's talk about beauty. What is it? We don't, you know, we don't talk about those questions very much anymore. That's really helpful. I, I really appreciate that, Eric. To stay with questions, it seems that's an underrated skill Uh, You write, a good question grabs a hold of you and and won't let go. How would you say we can improve our ability to not only ask ourselves good questions, but also others? Well, first of all, I agree with the author 100%. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm not the first person to point this out, but it's worth pointing out that the one thing that we don't teach in school is how to ask questions, right? We talk about where to find the answers, how to gauge the answers. We don't really teach kids how to ask questions. And I'll just leave that out there to think about why that might be and what we can do about it. In terms of asking better questions ourselves, I always try to step back and say, what is the obvious question that no one's asking? Either because it just seems silly to ask, it just seems so childish to ask. In fact, while we're talking about children, what is the question that a seven-year-old would ask, right? I met one philosopher out at Stanford who told me that a philosopher is a seven-year-old with a bigger brain. And I love that. And it's true. That sense of wonder and curiosity, right? And of asking these questions that adults don't ask. So, one way is to put yourself in the shoes of a seven-year-old, you know, like, well, why? Why is that man wearing headphones or why? Whatever it is. And you may, some of them may just be get you nowhere, but some of them might lead somewhere. So it's asking the obvious questions that no one else is asking. And that's, that's a good place to start. How about how to listen like Schopenhauer? Interesting character. I was wanting to know if you could provide a little background on him. So Schopenhauer, 
was a 19th century German philosopher. He was a world-class grump, misanthrope, failure in many ways, as it turns out a lot of my philosophers were. <laughs> Tried teaching at the University of Berlin, got went mano a mano with ombre ombre with Hegel and lost and got kicked out. But and it's easy to say, well, what can we learn from someone so grumpy? Well, he there's always another side of the story. And it turns out that he he loved animals, first of all. He he loved his poodle, who he called Atman, and would talk to him like he was a person. He was active. This is the 19th century, you know, involved in the sort of precursor to the ASPCA, Animal Welfare Leagues, which was not very popular back then. And he loved music. And he loved music in a very profound way. He developed a whole philosophy of music. I'm going to try to sum up Schopenhauer in about 30 seconds here. But basically, he believed that there was this force out there called the will, which was like gravity, only not as benign. And it suffused everything, and it was devouring itself. And it's a pretty nasty thing, but he thought it was the driving force of the universe. Pretty dark, like I said. But he thought there were two ways to escape this force of the will. And one was through asceticism, uh, living like a monk. In fact, he was an early proponent of Buddhism and read about it. And you can be celibate and live like a monk. I'm like, okay, that's nice. Let's go on to number two. And number two is the way aesthetics, art, in particular music. He thought when you listen to a beautiful piece of music, you escape this force, the will. And there's a transcendent quality to music, he thought. He called it the universal language of the soul. And the more I read him, I found out he was listening in all kinds of ways. He believed in listening to your own voice as well. So he's, again, writing in the 1800s, but he's warning about excess information. He said, sometimes you need to put the book down and just sit with these questions yourself and not always look for the answers in books. Well, now we have Google, which is books times a million, right? <laughs> so he's warning uh, against filling your head up with the voices of others so that you don't recognize your own still small voice. And he's very prescient that way. And so one of the lessons here is something we can learn from the grumpiest philosophers out there. Another one is that I think listening is, you know, I spent most of my career, a lot of it with NPR, which is the art of listening. And a excellent radio producer named David Isay has, as he said, that listening is an act of love. And I do believe that. And Schopenhauer believed that. And he had a compassionate side, and that compassion came through listening. So, yeah, I think that's that's the lesson from Schopenhauer. I love it. And I, I love the metaphysics of misery that you write. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he said his philosophy is one thought, but then it took him a thousand pages to expand upon it. And it's all like, as I say, there have been lots of pessimistic philosophers, but only one true philosopher of pessimism. Like he like <laughs> explains it all. So, yeah. How do you think Schopenhauer, this concept of shaking off the world how do you think that could be put onto our modern modern day kind of distractions, I guess, if you will? Any sort of thing come to mind in terms of present day, our everyday lives? No, well, I think this idea of entering the, a transcendent state to stop the buzz in your head. And for Schopenhauer, it was music. And, and, and I think for a lot of people, it can be music, but it can be other sounds. It can be just stepping away from the books slash internet. He was, as I said earlier, a early proponent and student of Eastern religions. 
way before there was a new age section in the Barnes and Noble, you know, I mean, in an Eastern thought section, right? So he's reading like one of the first translations of the Upanishads, the Hindu ancient religious tracts. And I think he is sensing that, that they're onto something about this stepping off from the world, that the world is too much with us, as Wordsworth said. And increasingly, I think we, we all feel that way. And, you know, every philosopher I wrote about was both engaged with the world, none was really a complete hermit, but also disengaged and would toggle back and forth. David Hume, who I, I mentioned, I don't have a whole chapter on him, but the Scottish philosopher, he would, he was like the absolute poster child for this. He would go to pubs and be very extroverted and chatting with people in, in Edinburgh of the 18th century. And then he would withdraw to his study for days and days on an end. And I found this to be true of almost all the philosophers, just toggling back and forth between engagement with the world and disengagement, conversations with others, others, and then a conversation with yourself. I mean, Plato said that when a man is thinking, he's having a conversation with himself. He's talking to himself. And you need to shut out the world now and then to have that conversation with yourself. That is so, so helpful. The chapter on how to be kind, like Confucius, you decide on the on the F train in New York. Counterintuitive, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, why not go to China? Well, I'd been there, done that, and I wanted I wanted to show that wisdom is portable, right? Like, you don't need to go to China to imbibe Confucius. You can go ride the F train. Have you ridden the F train? I have not. Okay. It is the worst train in the New York City subway <laughs> system, which is saying something. So I'm like, let me see if I can find kindness on the F train. I rode it seven days in a row, like eight, nine hours a day from one end of the line in Jamaica, Queens to Coney Island and the other end back and forth. And I'm here to say I survived. <laughs> How did having kindness on your mind shape that experience during all of, all of those rides? Well, you look for it. Well, and that's the thing is I'm I'm not just a passenger trying to get from point A to point B. My idea was if I can see acts of kindness on the F train during rush hour in New York City, then you can see it anywhere. And you, you start to, to look for it and it got me thinking about what actually is kindness. Are humans naturally kind or not? Confucius and a successor of his, uh, Mencius, even said this more strongly, he believed that basically human nature is good. And Mencius uses an example of you're walking past a, a well and you see a young child perched above the well and the girl, she's a young girl and she's about to fall into the well hundreds of feet down. He thought that instinctively you're going to have the urge to reach out and help that child. Whether you actually go through with it and help them or not is another story. But he thought that human nature was essentially good. And, and I, I believe that as well. And there are other philosophers, Hobbes and others who would say, no, we're humans are bad and it's only society that makes us good. But no, I think we are born with that kernel of goodness. So that the chapter was a way to explore the nature of kindness and what particularly what Confucius had to say about it and about rituals of kindness. You know, this has been a year of dependence on ritual because of the pandemic. And I'm talking not about religious rituals per se, although that may work for people. I'm, I've got a ritual of making coffee. I've got my morning coffee ritual and I've got my, my late morning coffee ritual. Then I have my early afternoon coffee ritual. Lots of coffee. Each one's a little different. Each one involves different apparatus, apparati, and it helps me get <laughs> through the day. 
And Confucius thought that was good. He thought we humans need ritual, not mindless ritual, but meaningful ritual. Yeah, I would have to say that that chapter definitely changed my perspective on rituals. I have a much greater appreciation for how they, as you write, hold us together than prior to. Yeah. You also go on a uh, a trip to Stoic Camp, which I, I didn't know was a thing on how yeah. to cope like Epictetus. Could you briefly kind of speak to that? Isn't that just a great juxtaposition of words, <laughs> Stoic Camp, you know? Yeah. Um, I saw an ad for it. I'm like, what the heck? You know, and I pictured a bunch of campers sitting around with bad food and hard cots, but not complaining because it's Stoic Camp. So, it was started by a great guy named Rob Coulter, who's the professor of philosophy at the University of Wyoming and a practicing Stoic. He just, he loves Stoicism. And and one of the precepts of Stoicism is to live in accord with nature. And he thought, well, Wyoming, we've got lots of nature, you know. <laughs> and the, the truth is, I don't know if you know this, but Stoicism has been enjoying a renaissance of sorts, a resurgence, even before the pandemic. Very popular, especially in military circles. People in the military seem to love Stoicism, but all walks of life. And so, I signed up for Rob's Stoic Camp, took the train out there as close as I could get to Laramie, Wyoming. And the content of it is that we would all sit in a circle in this kind of ski lodge meets minimum security prison sort of setting, not very comfortable, but evocative. And we would read Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, read his meditations. We read Epictetus in his his handbook and other works of his, and we discuss it. it. was philosophy in that sense, just grown up sitting around talking about, in a non-religious way really, about how to lead a more meaningful life, about wisdom. And it was refreshing. It was also uncomfortable as hell. I mean, <laughs> but you can't <laughs> complain. I mean, I got thrown into this dormitory with a bunch of philosophy grad students who hadn't showered in a week. <laughs> and, it, you know, I... I've reached a point in life where I like certain creature comforts, and uh, I realized that I can live without a lot of those. And and how much, and this is stoicism in 20 seconds, is external events are not up to us, much less than we think. Nothing's up to us externally. Internally, much more is up to us than we think. We can control our reaction to events. Things are not bad except that we make them so in our mind. That's stoicism in a nutshell. Um, Stoic ethics, at least. They have their own metaphysics as well. And the beauty of Stoic Camp is I got to live it, right? It's a laboratory. And I was I was the <laughs> guinea pig. I would highly recommend Stoic Camp. Rob is still holding it in late spring, I think May, June, out in Wyoming each year. Uh, hopefully, he can resume next year. That's awesome. I love it. And you wrap up the book with How to Die Like Montaigne. And you write in here that he's the philosopher that you'd like to have a beer with most of all. Why is that? Yeah, he'd probably want to be a glass of Bordeaux or something probably, <laughs> but same idea. He actually lived in a vineyard, which I visited in uh, southern France, in Bordeaux. I like Montaigne. He was a bit like me. He lived during a time of pandemic, not COVID, but the bubonic plague, and he escaped not to suburban Washington, but to a tower in the Bordeaux countryside. And it was up in that tower, which I visited, anyone can visit today, walk up three winding flights of stairs. And he sat there with a the view of the countryside and he thought, he had all these books, thousand books, and he read a lot of them and he started to find his voice. 
So he wrote the essays. He invented the term essays. Essays come, English word essay comes with the French assay, which means to try, an attempt. An essay is an attempt. So he's throwing darts at the wisdom board. He's trying things out. And he writes about everything. That's what I love about him. He writes about life. He writes about death, which we'll get to in a second. And he, he writes about thumbs and cannibals and flatulence and pretty much everything. <laughs> and you can see that his, his self-confidence is growing because he starts off by quoting the ancient Seneca and Cicero, quotes them a lot. But as he goes on in the essays, it's five, 600 pages at least, you can see his confidence in his own voice and is growing. Yet his motto, which he had carved into the ceiling above his desk, was in English, what do I know? And very Socratic, very wise, I think, that like you reach some conclusions, but then you start over with, well, what, what do I know? It's actually pretty liberating. So when it came to death, he starts off by fearing it, as all of us do. And then something happens to him. He has an accident. He was a great equestrian, but he, some jerk cut him off like in rush hour traffic. <laughs> it sends him <laughs> flying off the, his horse and he hits hard and he's, he just thinks he's dead right there. He's not, everyone thinks he's dead. He's not moving. Then he starts to move. Then he starts to cough up buckets of blood and this isn't good. They carry him back to, back to his house and he, his cottage. He, he doesn't think he's going to make it, but he doesn't fear it. And he sort of comes to the conclusion that there, there is nothing to fear. He comes around to Epicurus, who said, basically, you fear the nothingness after death, but you were nothing before you were born. You don't fear and dread that. He comes around essentially that Epicurean point of view, and he comes to a, a point of, of acceptance of death. And partly through writing and his works, you pass the torch onto the next generation. We're sitting here 500 years talking about Montaigne. So you could argue he hasn't died. We're discussing him. <laughs> How would you say coming to this realization on, on death may change our, our everyday lives? Well, I mean, I, I use the analogy of a, like a giant swimming pool that everyone's going to get thrown into one day without exception. But nobody talks about it. We just say, well, let's leave it to the swimming pool specialists. You know, we don't want to discuss it. This is part of our life, and death is a part of our life, right? That we don't talk about. And in my experience, and from the philosophers I've read, just because you don't talk about something doesn't mean it doesn't affect you and it's not there in the room. So death is always in the room with us, but we don't talk about it. And we don't allow ourselves to even have a discussion with ourselves about it. And that backs up on us. By not thinking about death consciously, we end up actually, it ends up occupying more real estate in our mind than it would otherwise. Mm. So that that is one of the problems with just sort of the denial of death, is that it doesn't work, <laughs> this denial. <laughs> and look, I haven't fully come around to Montaigne. I still fear death. I would like to hang around for as long as possible. But, you know, just letting go of this fear and letting go of this in talking about the swimming pool that we're all going to get thrown into, it diminishes the power and its grip over our life. And it, it frees us up maybe to, to do things we wouldn't do otherwise. I, I don't have all the answers on that one. As you can tell, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with it. If you have the answers, please let me know. <laughs> no, not, uh, not as of yet. Still searching. As we start to wrap up our, our conversation, 
If you could pick one of these life lessons to read a, again, which chapter might it be? Oh, boy. We haven't talked about Gandhi, who was the one philosopher who I knew quite a lot about before I began researching this book. The rest, I I dove deep. I did a ton of research, but I came to them not knowing much about them. Gandhi, I've been reading and studying for decades. I've met his grandchildren, had lunch with them. I've mm. I've read pretty much everything he's written, and I've read a lot that's been written about him, and I admire him, and I admire what he stands for. And I think he's actually actually relevant to our times in a couple of ways. One is his the chapter on Gandhi in my book is called How to Fight Like Gandhi. Gandhi was not a wimp. This is the biggest misconception about him. He was actually very confrontational but in a completely nonviolent way. And he thought the only thing worse than violence was cowardice. So he was not a coward. He also never used the term enemy, only opponent or adversary. Um, and he said, I have many adversaries, but no enemies. And in our current political climate and just our civic climate, we seem to quickly turn our adversaries into enemies. And to turn someone into an enemy is to dehumanize them is to negate them. And it's a way to just to cut off the connection and the conversation with them. So Gandhi thought the goal of a good fight was not to coerce someone to your side, but to convert them. So he was always trying to convert the British over to his point of view, even if he didn't succeed. He thought that the ends never justify the means. <laughs> that if you have bloody means to gain your independence, you will have a yeah. bloody country. So uh, he was very much about the means matter more than the ends. And a little pearl of wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita, which was his favorite book, which was this, this little thin book of spiritual poetry as part of a larger book, but it's, if you were to buy it today, it's less than 100 pages. And I think the part that is the life lesson that, that's the real takeaway for me from that book is this notion that, as Lord Krishna says to Arjun, you should put 100% effort into whatever you're doing, 100%, but have exactly 0% invested in the results. And I think that, in a nutshell, is the key to a happy life. Mm -hmm. But it, it's incredibly hard to do, especially in our results-oriented culture, because the minute we try to do something, we shackle ourselves to some preconception of the results. A life free of expectations is actually a, a very happy and content life. And it's not a lazy life, especially for Americans. We hear all oh, no expectations. That's just sit around, drink beer, watch TV. No, that's not what the Gita or Gandhi or anyone else is talking about. It's you put everything into it, but your happiness is not dependent on the results. Does that make sense? I love it. It makes beautiful sense. And that's a great spot to wrap up the show on. I encourage everyone to, to pick up the book, The Socrates Express, in search of life lessons from dead philosophers. This has been a great conversation. Where would you point people interested in learning more, Eric? My website, Eric Weiner, W-E-I-N-E-R books.com. And you can also subscribe to my monthly, only monthly, Atlas of Ideas newsletter where I ponder life's big questions and travel and that sort of thing. But yes, that's where you can find me. I love it. I'm a subscriber to it. I encourage everybody to do so as well. We'll link all of that in the show notes. Eric Weiner, I thank you so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure. 
Joshua, this was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.